Have you ever asked yourself if terms such as general truth or universal knowledge make any sense? Whose history are we learning at school? And how much of human knowledge are we missing? Why are the voices of a vast part of the world silenced? Or at best, remembered in wars, natural disaster, or in a postcard as an object of exoticism? How does the world look like from the so-called peripheries? Voices from the Peripheries is a podcast about decolonizing knowledge and mind. My name is Emira Ben Ali. I am from Tunisia and I have been working in European universities for the last 10 years. Like many of you, I aspire to contribute to the social justice and equality efforts. In this podcast, I will invite scholars, students and activists worldwide to discuss topics such as cultural dominance, decolonial feminism, food sovereignty, Islamophobia, and the genius knowledge, among other topics. If, like me, you feel angry when you look at your school curriculum, if you believe that we have a lot to learn from minorities and people in the peripheries, then this podcast is for you. Hello everybody and welcome to this first episode of Voices from the Peripheries. I'm happy to receive today Professor Sadvi Dar. Sadvi, you are a reader in interdisciplinary management and organization study in the Queen Mary University of London. You have done extensive work on anti-racism and decolonization in general, and by work I mean both academic paper and activism. You also have co-founded many initiatives such as the Decolonizing Alliance and Building the Anti-Racist Classroom, among other initiatives. So how would you define yourself? Yeah, thank you, um, Amira, for this invitation and um, uh, for, uh, I think there is this immediate tension when um, being asked uh, to uh, be the first voice on um, a podcast uh, which is aiming to uh, build consciousness from the periphery with the periphery um, and i say this because uh, you know when you ask me how do you define yourself um, it's uh, immediately i think about um, how uh, as a uh, academic in london this you know, colonial center of knowledge production um, and epistemic uh, 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 injustice uh, that um, I am a, a, a fair-skinned, light-skinned brown person with caste privilege working in academia in a Russell Group University, which is one of the top tier kind of uh, uh, strata of university in the UK. And uh, as such, recognizing maybe what Baba would call the third space, right? Recognizing that it is um, an ambiguity in which uh, I, um, I, I see myself and I think also how I am seen. Um, so there is, 
I think in, in terms of defining myself, I can only define it as sitting somewhere at these intersections of systems of privilege and systems of oppression, um, which mean that uh, I, I, I can be visible and I can uh, uh, voice, uh, but at the same time, there is obviously a structure there which um, uh, diminishes my, my value. Um, you know, through, through racialized and gendered logics. So uh, I think this is a very interesting question to start with uh, when we begin a conversation um, because uh, uh, there are many um, hidden and unhidden uh, systems of, of uh, uh, power that our bodies inhabit and work through. And I heard actually one of these... Uh... I think there was another podcast where you did an interview and you were talking about your experience going back to, uh, to India and how it was, mm -hmm. was it, yeah, it was it for one year. It was also interesting to hear this experience. Yeah, the, the, the field work that I did, um, and I think the, the field work itself, uh, you know, as soon as I think uh, any researchers enters field work, we're in essentially entering a structure of power. Um, and in that, I think uh, it is, uh, I mean, to, to just explain and describe maybe this experience was that I, my body and uh, was red as white. Uh, so, you know, if I walked into a um, community group in the heart of Andhra Pradesh with an NGO where I was doing this ethnographic research, um, you know, the, 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 the guy who was um, the head of this NGO would turn around and, uh, you know, often ask the people sitting in that room, is she English or is she Indian? Yeah. And it's all, all of them, English. <laughs> uh, and I remember feeling so hurt, so sensitive, you know, about this. Um, but now I can recognize the importance of that distinction uh, for the community um, and also for the community to um, hold me to account for my privilege. Yes. Uh, to, and so this was more than a performance or a joke, but I think it was a way of the community calibrating itself uh, in defiance of, you know, white power coming in to observe and make notes about the other way of life. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, talking about defensiveness, um, Amira, I, I think this defensiveness is very conscious it's a conscious thing in in anthropology and ethnography in ethnography and we know it's conscious because of this practice of reflexivity where when we're reading these academic papers very often uh, the reviewer will tell you if you've not done this yourself that where is your reflexive piece and you then just list I am a Brahmin, I am a, you know, fair-skinned woman, I am queer, whatever, you know. And somehow, by listing these things, we're absolved of the uh, uh, violence and brutality with which this whole architecture of observation, notif notification, typology, typologies, and, uh, uh, um, you know, quite sort of single stories, uh, about uh, the, the South in particular are generated. Uh, and so I think this is something that we should, we should talk about more 
not only more explicitly, but I think in ways that are more generative for solidarity, right? Uh, in ways that um, um, kind of, you know, uh, uh, create the, the, the terms of engagement uh, whereby the researcher is not consistently setting uh, the parameters or the, uh, the fence, the picket line of the field, that this is something that can be negotiated and that we can be held accountable for. Okay, now, since you have done extensive work on decolonization or decolonizing, I want to ask you how you define decolonization. Hmm. Um, I, yeah, um, I think it is at its essence, it is um, a, a politics of land, a hmm. politics of geography. Um, it is um, a process which is which started from the first encounter between the Europeans and the soon-to-be colonized people and uh, as such as it is, it is a politics that is consistently moving needing to reformulate to regain a sense of body its connection to land um, its connection to um, the norms that are set as um, principles of uh, uh, right and wrong um, and to disrupt those. So decolonization, I think really, I mean, if you look at decolonization as a lived practice, a lived politics, a praxis of struggle, then it is not a grand gesture. Uh, it is the confluence of multiple strategies of resistance. It is uh, in the everyday. Uh, it is not about, um, you know, uh, consumer lobbying of a corporation. Um, it is not about um, a tweet that gets a thousand likes. Um, it is, I think... Uh, maybe that but also and must be um an attempt to collectively uh create community to care for people who are um, in a struggle uh with colonial european white power um who are in a struggle against heteronormative cisnormative um uh, ableist structures uh it is, it is, for me, um, a ongoing uh, project of community rather than a project of the self. Um, and, and I think in that project of community, um, what is uh, uh, the, the most, um, I think one thing that, that, that I think has come up for me again and again is how affective and affecting these relationships are um, that we create with uh, people from uh, different regions, uh, different registers, different uh, ways of being and inhabiting the world, uh, that these are often temporal, where there are moments of great desire that come together, a, a, a huge um, 
uh, statement of what we want. Yes, um, and those are important junctures. Um, and other times there is um, an inability to see each other, um, an inability for uh, those in uh, positions where they have more privilege uh, to understand uh, the harm that this work does to people's bodies, uh, who are more perhaps more severely uh, uh, under um, conditions of, of violence, uh, be that through exhaustion, or be that through precarity, uh, or be that through gender violence. So um, it is, I don't know if this is a succinct definition, and, and maybe we, we should be working against a succinct definition, but I, uh, to go back to what I initially said, I do think that decolonization is something cited, you know, it's located, um, it's uh, built in the architecture and the way that land is conceived um, um, and, and uh, how that then um, operationalizes uh, racism and gendered hierarchies uh, to, to uh, uh, I guess, sort of precipitate a, a struggle of resistance against those. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's difficult to, to give you a concise definition. I could, of course, draw on, you know, Mignolo or uh, Quijano or Winter and uh, Alexander, but um, I'm, I'm just giving you something that I felt. But that's that's the question, right? It's not about a definition of someone, but how you live also this decolonizing and, and you say it also this collaborative. I think this is something that is I see all the time in, in your work and in your you try to create communities and to you talk a lot about solidarity. This is a it's a practice. Um and and, and I will fail at it, you know. Uh, I will fail at it as well. Um um, it's, it's, it is, you know, this, often I've heard students who are beginning their anti-racist or their decolonizing, um, politics, they ask me, but, you know, um, I, I feel, you know, that I'm putting myself at risk, uh, because, you know, people in power are going to, um, you know, accuse me or target me and, I have to be honest and say, yes, decolonizing is a, a violent engagement because you are entering a dialogue with the oppressor. It, it will, it, there will always be violence there. Of course. Um, it's one of community. Um, and one of solidarity, because uh, a single person cannot sustain that engagement. Uh, we have to have community. We have to have folks around us to tell us, come back to us. You know, you've done enough. Yeah, and as you said, it's, um, I mean, even if some countries are uh, theoretically uh, decolonized now, um, we're still very much colonized. Mm. And we need to work together yeah, of yeah. colonization. So it's not something yeah. you do alone and you need support to do it, right? You do, and I think 
Amira, so many of these independence movements were from the very start co-opted by European power, right? Yeah. Um, so you see, for example, a country like India, where the independence movement was fragmented between those the caste system to those who were against it. So you know, Gandhi, who is always elevated as you know um, this great. Uh, uh, a peaceful, peace-loving um, political thinker and activist uh, was uh, uh, in his time and, and thankfully uh, uh, because of people like um, Arundhati Roy and Priyamvada Gopal, the, the counter-narrative to that that was so buried, which was that no, he, he was an anti-black racist. He was uh, very much co-opted co by the casteist Brahmic movement. Um, and so uh, the, the very terms of independence for India then were cultivated on uh, inherent systems of oppression. Mm. And those exist. So the post-colony is always one that is in a way attempting to redefine itself over and over again. Um, as both separate from the colonizer, but also as a repetition of the colonizer's ways. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, I think this is something which um, um, is, 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 is a very real struggle, actually, in, in the higher education and university setting, where we're both very um, accustomed to and where we work, uh, that, uh, you know, the curriculum the teaching, the uh, degrees, uh, the administration of higher education um, actively inhibits uh, uh, resistance to Eurocentric canons. Um, and um, yes, this is in part done by the post-colony state itself, but also it is done through the larger architecture of knowledge production, um, the uh, centering of uh, university presses and book presses in the global north, uh, the um, huge fees on translation, um, the uh, very real barriers to translation, um, which means that knowledge from the global south <laughs> cannot shape the direction and the tenor of work in the global north, but more importantly that where it has done, that link has been severed or erased. Mm. So it is always the global north that is centered as the critical revolutionary force for progressive thinking and autonomous politics. Uh, whereas um, so much of the knowledge of the global south, which is ongoing, right? So the post-colony is still in a colonial struggle. Um, that is almost entirely erased. Yeah, yeah. Um, talking about university isn't uh, how to say it being someone I mean we claim decolonization but university as you said is in a way a center of colonization because it's where this white um, knowledge is uh, produced and transmitted mm. again and again um, how can we yeah uh, good question um, I remember some years ago, um, 
a student society, Decolonizing Student Society, said they had a terrible conversation with someone who told them that they can't decolonize and it's ridiculous that they even think they can decolonize a university because it is such a center hold of colonial uh, knowledge. Um, I mean, I, I respect the person who gave that advice, yes? <laughs> But I think that advice also misses the point, which is decolonizing is a multitude and plurality of strategies to disrupt, to throw sand in the gears yeah. of the machine. Yeah. It's, it's about creating a dissonance between European white superiority and the counter narrative, which is the huge amounts of violence, oppression, anxiety, uh, desperation, um, mental health issues, uh, the devaluing of people of color's work, uh, the, the patterns of, of disciplining and um, disciplining of, of, of certain communities of students for exam offenses, right? Uh, for assessment offense, the consistent disciplining of the, of the other body. And, and that, is, that, is, that, that is what we do, right? So that is, as, as decolonizing uh, uh, scholar activists, that is what we commit to. We don't commit to um, creating a degree on decolonizing business management. No. We commit to doing enough uh, and doing a variety of things so that knowledge that shapes uh, the practice that shapes this brutality is fractured mm. right um, so the oppressor does not know which way you're going to come from next mm. Mm. Uh, and to that degree you're working sometimes in camouflage right so you will perhaps on the exterior, uh, on the external or on the outside, I should say, you uh, present a, a very congenial uh, uh, a project or a piece of work, but you are actually raising community building, um, giving sustenance and nourishment to students who think otherwise who practice otherwise, because those are the voices and the bodies and the people who need community the most. Mm -hmm. uh, to insist on their survival is a project of decolonial de praxis. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and we do this not from an explicit uh, uh, demand, although explicit demands are important, but we also do this alongside all those practices that operate through the back door. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and um, uh, I remember, I mean, if I can say a little bit more about this, my own sort of value of as, as a student, uh, in, in a way, when I think back to it, has always been, um, I think it's always uh, been nourished by uh, a mentor in in my in my life as a student i've always had a, 
an anchor, you know, who has sort of when I'm setting adrift and things are feeling uh, too much and I'm exhausted and I'm tired and it's not right. There's been a mentor who's consistently brought me along and uh, has supported me. Um, not even monetarily. This is not what I'm talking about, but actually about uh, opening up other conversations for me, supporting back when I'm in a group, listening to me when I'm saying. Uh, these are such small gestures, but actually you'll be, I don't think you will be surprised, but these are extremely meaningful because most of the time when students uh, especially those who are committed to political causes such as anti-racism or decolonizing um, or addressing homophobia, they are uh, often met with um, um, an institutional response that either uh, belittles, sort of, you know, diminishes the strength of their conviction mm. or will um, use a placeholder to just keep them happy for the time being and then nothing actually changes in terms of outcomes for those people. Um, it's, it's that kind of game that universities play, which means that even as an academic with so much uh, privilege, place in an office, that um, it, the, the, that logic, that governance structure is so large and powerful that you cannot overturn it in an instance. It's, yeah. It mm -hmm. is, you know, the, the, yeah, it, it is the long durée, isn't it? It's a, it's a politics that has centuries old history and it will have a centuries. Uh, it will, yeah. And who or what inspires you as a person? I mean, you said that you, you have had, different time, different persons or a mentor that would encourage you, but who or what, I mean, inspires you to start? Like, when did you feel that, yes, now I need to talk about this and this is my struggle and I need... Um, I think it really... I, I, I have to be sort of very honest and open with you here because actually being quite affected, sort of quite depressed as a child um, when I engaged with uh, violence and brutality through the news or, or through, through TV, mostly as a child. Um, and being told that, don't, don't be so affected. Don't be so affected, you know. And that always felt wrong to me. <laughs> So why shouldn't I be affected by it? Like, how can it be wrong to be affected by this? And I think um, then critical, uh, when I was introduced to critical theory uh, later on during my degree, ecology, so I was reading lots of white European theorists here, um, and uh, including feminists, including postmodernists and post-structuralists. And in a way, this for me gave a kind of mental template with which to reason, uh, reason to feel, to draw affect into uh, uh, the way we theorize and the way we build the praxis or a politics. 
um and i think um later then when i was doing my doctoral well my my first long visit to india which was just after my degree um where the experiences and narratives and histories of racism um were again given this kind of cognitive template through reading decolonial and post-colonial theory mm. so i think it's been a catch-up between feeling and sensing something being told that it's not important that i should not think about this and then being presented with this uh, knowledge form of knowledge which validates those feelings mm -hmm. and that sensibility so yeah i wasn't born like a <laughs> an anti-racist or a decolonizer but i think um this is why the university space is so ambiguous because it is it is both a site of oppression and violence but it is also a site of resistance right it is also a site of um the possibility of an old an, an, a kind of more pluriversal community so yeah it's interesting isn't it but i mean you're saying if there was some sort of uh, specific um, specific thing that's affected me um, I think actually um, early on um, when I was I read um, Arturo Escobar's uh, uh, work I think this is 1995 where he uh, looks at the confluence between the administration uh, encountering development I think it was called mm -hmm. um, that was a very important book that was a very important book actually um, and uh, yeah and then obviously then thereafter uh, I've read more and more but I think that was actually quite a big a big turning point mm. I used a lot of Escobar in my thesis as well, and I remember that I was so happy, like as if I met him in person. It was a yeah. encounter, right? It's, 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 that's why I said sometimes it's not a pe people that you meet, but it's a book. It's a, yeah. an encounter with a writer that write the same way you feel. And talking about affect, I think, as you said, it's a lot about affect and emotion and um, um, we, we, we talk uh, in the beginning about uh, this feeling of anger and love and desire and uh, yeah I think we were kind of talking a little bit about uh, this this struggle and, and kind of naming the struggle or trying to define the different affective registers mm -hmm. that uh, that that uh, shape this this struggle and we find often that we will move through these registers, which at time can be very hopeful, uh, but we are then in the next moment in um, in, in a moment of, of despair. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so um, in terms of, of uh, 
of, of, of building solidaristic movements. I think we do this uh, in knowledge and in recognition that we're all at different, in different registers, right? We are moving through the politics at very different paces, um, determined, of course, by, by regional and land struggles and uh, by political struggles and um, familial ones, maybe even. Uh, but the, the, it seems that we are, we are often between anger and love, between these uh, uh, two forces which um, uh, which determine the 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 spark of our mm. of our politics the the kind of um, the uh, the sharpness of it mm. uh, and uh, I mean uh, writers such as Audrey Lord uh, have written uh, quite extensively um, on on the uses of anger and um, um, and also the 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 uh, 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 the erotic in in political anti-racist feminist movements, uh, and um, yeah, I think there is the, those those texts, those ideas, in a way need to we need to keep coming back to those um, because uh, yeah, uh, it's it's a very sort of um, moving and fluid uh, experience. Um, and, and I think, you know, as we sort of, I've sort of talked about anchors before, but these texts also are great anchors in, um, uh, yeah, providing reassurance and, and some sort of uh, stability in, in all of this. Mm. Yeah, I always think from my personal um, experience that anger was always my driver, you know, I think I'm not easy to get angry, but when I'm really angry, when it's it's about injustice, then I do things. But then at some point, I also noticed that anger could consume you. So it's um, I was thinking, how can I use this? You know, it's like a fuel to drive things mm. without consuming me. Mm -hmm. so one of my tactics was always to read some Sufism, or you know, because it's it's also very liberating and very. A resistance spirit is not uh, yeah so i think there is also a way to to balance yeah i was just gonna say amir i think um like i see a lot of women of color in the movement um and uh, this i see across student groups like the majority of students doing this work are women of color they're black women um and i i kind of see that also at the level of faculty where there are a few vocal male voices but actually the vast majority of the work is being done by women of color and um i think there are you know um really high stakes involved um in terms of uh women of color being exhausted like fatigue, um, Akugo Emajulu wrote a great piece on this, you know, on um, um, the, the activist exhaustion and the politics of exhaustion. Um, you know, there is burnout. Um, and there is also, I think, 
actually what quite a few women around me have started doing um, more so is to actively retreat from the work right so to say no i'm going to now close everything down and i'm just not going to do anything um and i think that is a really important preemptive politics of refusal um to and and i think we can only do this when we begin to recognize those cycles of exhaustion right um but i think you know really the vision should certainly be to build spaces and communities where the politics doesn't depend on our exhaustion right um and that is incredibly hard to do in a highly you know market capitalist higher education setting um especially uh, huh especially in business school i mean in the business school yeah. right of capitalism so it is becoming even more yeah hard to you know to be against everything against the roots amira have you not noticed though i think there is a consciousness that is building and growing it's at its very nascent stages right now but i think there is um certainly something happening and i think it's it it's potentially taken off with the movement for black lives um and i say that not because decolonizing wasn't going on before that but i think it is potentially america being the site of colonial white knowledge that when it was so horrendously threatened um by the resistance movement and the powerful resistance movement of black communities in america that north america i should say that um that the business school has felt it cannot stay in the position that it hmm. has stayed in that it kind of needs to reformulate just to stay relevant and legitimate i say this with incredible cynicism here yeah 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 you know i say this with incredible cynicism because i feel that whatever whilst there is a a nascent consciousness emerging i also sense that we have already been co-opted decolonizing and anti-racist movements have already been co-opted into raising the profile of the university raising the impact factor of some project or research that you are involved in um and so actually this is an important moment right for the business school because it kind of sits on this pivot where there are multiple directions uh that are in front of us now paths um and uh that is not to say oh, we must reckon with this and choose our path carefully but to to take this time to to center our desire around what we actually want because there the, there seems to be some reconfiguration or the some subtle small reconfiguration um 
you know and I, and I see this for example in in the the projects and the ideas that uh, PhD applications and applicants are coming with that there is a desire to work with anti-racist and decolonizing frameworks to center the global south in ways that were not there and they were not there because people were ashamed of doing that work people did not want to do this work they did not want to associate with this work and i think there is a small but important counter movement now mm. where students are coming into business schools it's a very small group of them but they're coming to business schools with this desire to to unpack and disrupt those those norms and and that i do find um i do find that important important and it gives us hope and i i think you you are right i can see that the students are more and more aware and they are thirsty to know it's as as uh, as soon as you engage with them in this type of conversation i, I see that they yeah. want more they want to know more um yeah. but they need to i see from the essays and the exam you know if you if they know that you are the teacher and you are allowing this space then they write and and they are angry and they talk about these topics otherwise they will keep you know reproducing the main uh, narrative so i think in this way we, we really play this this uh, important role also to provide the safe place for the students you know to talk to speak yeah that's a really powerful message i think um and i'm thinking here about how social media platforms incite vocality but also suppress democracy suppress accountability and so i found that students don't want to raise their hand to say something counter um it happens but it may be just five or six students out of 70 who who are willing to come into a debate everyone else feels that they don't want to speak up they don't want to be part of these discussions and um i do i you know i really do feel that there is a um kind of synergy between how student subjectivities are very much mediated by social media platforms um and how these are then kind of uh uh recalibrated or reproduced in the in the classroom setting so what are the challenges i think when we, when as you said also for your students if you are doing this you are in trouble and you are also mm -hmm. designed as the troublemaker because you yeah. all face the system right so what other challenges sure. you you know well yes i mean okay so <laughs> part of the challenge is exactly that you're always somewhere between a hero and a victim mm -hmm. okay mm -hmm. so this this binary uh we have to uh put to the side no uh but uh, uh and to actually deal with the reality of doing the politics yes um, um and i think this is why solidarity is so important and it is also the biggest challenge yeah so i think um the biggest challenge is to create communities uh of trust 
um, to create affective relations where we are committed to a project rather than simply showing some kind of alliance or indication of, you know, support uh, that uh, we resist performative solidarity. So we resist saying, you know, and this is difficult because a lot of social media depends on it. Mm. Um, a lot of this performativity but um, I think we should kind of have open conversations about let's not do this there is no need to do this mm. um, and I think even just setting the, the sort of terms of how a space or a community conversation will go it, it does bring a, a different texture to the kinds of conversations that you can have in that space so I think the challenge is uh, building, sustaining, nourishing, and understanding what solidarity means. Um, and um, to work against the news cycle, right? So when Palestine is not in the news cycle, yes, the Palestinian people remain, you know, um, in a brutal regime, apartheid regime. Yeah. So we need to work and resist the attempts of capital to heighten our sensitivity to certain struggles at specific times and then to erase those struggles and those, those, um, those, those uh, solidaristic politics. Um, and I think that is also a challenge, right? That is also a challenge that whilst now you may have people talking about Palestine at workshops or conferences or in streams. They may want to bring it up. What happens next year or the year after? Um, so connecting struggles of Palestine to Kashmir, to what's happening in Colombia, to what's going on in the post colonies of India and Brazil more broadly, for example, this is, I think, a, a challenge, how to internationalize, yeah. how to sustain that. Yeah. I, th I think this would be one of the biggest problems um, and, and the biggest um, opportunities for, for disruption as well. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, yeah, it's already one hour and a half. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was really cool. It was a really interesting discussion. I really enjoyed it. And um, yeah, thank you. Thank you for reaching out. It